podcast reflects my personal opinions, views, and my own interpretation of information, and was prepared in my personal capacity. This podcast does not represent any institution, corporation, association, or society, just me. Hi guys, welcome back to Canadian Farmer. I'm Michelle, and on today's agenda, we have an overview of renal function and electrolyte balance. In particular, how this can be affected by drug therapy and what we need to know in order to monitor our patients. As electronic patient records slowly become more accessible and lab values are more easily retrieved, the role of monitoring patients' blood work as it pertains to their drug therapy has become much more practical for community pharmacists. And really, it's essential in order to assess the appropriateness of medication. As we know, so many medications require dosage adjustments based on renal function, and many can in turn affect electrolyte levels significantly. So the goal for this podcast is to gather what we need to know about renal function and electrolytes in order to best manage drug therapy. When do we recommend discontinuation of metformin or perindopril? When can trimethoprim be safely administered to someone on potassium supplements? Should I renew herbicidin for someone who hasn't had their blood work checked for almost a year? Is it safe for someone in renal failure to take Pradaxa? What drugs should be on my radar for patients with chronic kidney disease? And what symptoms are associated with electrolyte imbalance? That's a lot of questions, but they come up over and over again. Every day, we have to make decisions whether or not to dispense medication that will flag a huge drug interaction. So, for example, the interaction between trimethoprim and spironolactone. It's a Friday night, a prescription for SEPTA-DS arrives at your counter, and it flags an interaction. The patient is established on spironolactone, and both medications may increase potassium. Maybe they're even on an ACE inhibitor as well, triple threat. Your software warns that high levels of potassium could result in fatal cardiac arrhythmia. What do you do? Let's say you reference their most recent blood work and you get fairly recent potassium levels. But what does the number mean? What's good and what's bad? Okay, so let's begin with basic anatomy. Does the phrase resting membrane potential ring a bell? (laughs) Because our patients aren't going to ask us to explain how their drugs work on a cellular level... Let's keep this practical. I'm not going into unnecessary detail. Right, so our body is made of cells, a lot of them, and inside and around each of the cells is fluid. The different fluids within the body have unique qualities that are important for the body to function, like the electrolyte content. There's a set gradient, and it needs to be maintained for signals to transmit and for muscles to contract. So how much fluid are we talking about? In our entire body... It's about 40 liters. 15 liters is extracellular fluid, which includes intravascular fluid. That's our blood and our veins and our arteries. Then we have intracellular fluid. That's the fluid inside the cells. And this would be cytoplasm and neoplasm. And intracellular fluid totals about 25 liters. Okay, last is interstitial fluid. It's found all over the place. This is fluid outside of the cell, but other than blood. So interstitial fluid would include the fluid in the lymphatic system, synovial fluid, cerebrospinal fluid, digestive secretions, and all of that adds up to about 11 or 12 liters. Like I said already, every fluid in each space has a set balance for electrolyte distribution, 
and the kidneys are the regulator that maintain appropriate levels of each electrolyte. We have two kidneys and right above each is an adrenal gland. The renal artery brings blood into the kidneys where it's filtered by nephrons and the filtered blood exits through either the renal vein and the waste is filtered from the blood leaves via the ureter. So what the kidneys hang on to depends on what the body needs at the time and it's constantly changing. Water is regulated too. How much water is excreted depends on the volume requirements at the time to regulate things like blood pressure and maintain homeostasis within all 40 liters. You can appreciate how dehydration would complicate this process. Besides electrolytes and water, the kidneys also regulate amino acids and glucose. But the kidneys aren't just one big colander, they do more than filter blood. They also produce hormones, including calcitriol, erythropoietin, and they make enzymes like renin. And we'll get to this one in a minute. All right, so the kidneys pick and choose what to keep based on signals they receive from above. And I'm talking about the pituitary gland, not you know who. When the concentration of electrolytes rises, or if blood pressure is dropping, antidiuretic hormone is sent down to the kidneys. The antidiuretic hormone stimulates the kidneys to constrict blood vessels, thus increasing blood pressure, and it also promotes water conservation. The fluid is needed to increase blood volume and flush out solutes like potassium and sodium. Renin, the enzyme I mentioned a minute ago, is another volumizer, and it's produced in the kidneys themselves. When blood flow decreases or is restricted, renin will stimulate the angiotensin-converting enzyme to pick up the pace in converting angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2. The result is blood vessel constriction again and aldosterone excretion, and that will help to bring blood pressure and perfusion back up. So aldosterone is also made by the kidneys. It's a hormone and it increases sodium and water retention and therefore increases fluid volume. It also increases the amount of potassium flushed out in the urine. So the general idea here is that the kidneys adjust how they filter the blood based on feedback about blood pressure and circulation. They respond to increasing and decreasing amounts of these signaling substances. Unfortunately, the nephrons within the kidneys become less efficient in responding to these signals as renal disease progresses, like in diabetic nephropathy. This brings us to renal impairment. So let's take a minute here to understand how kidney disease is classified and what it really means to be in renal failure. The earliest stage of diabetic nephropathy is hyperfiltration. Patients will have a significantly elevated GFR. Albumin is the marker that helps to diagnose renal failure early on. Persistent albuminuria is the earliest clinical sign of kidney damage. At first, the amount will be below the threshold for detection in a urine dipstick. This would be considered microalbuminuria. But over time, as the kidney disease progresses, the level of albumin that leaks out increases, and in overt nephropathy, a positive urine dipstick will appear. The rate at which kidneys decline changes between stages of renal impairment. At the stage of microalbuminuria, the rate of decline is slow. In fact, it usually takes at least five years to go from normoalbuminuria, which I didn't know was a word, to microalbuminuria. 
and then another five years or so before overt kidney disease is diagnosed. Sadly though, once the stage of overt kidney disease has been reached, the damage speeds up. So renal function could decline by 5 to 10 mils per minute over just one year. Remember when we talked about diabetic neuropathy? In type 1 diabetes, it's uncommon for patients to already show clinical signs of neuropathy at the time of diagnosis. Do you remember? Type 1 diabetes gets diagnosed quickly, and so significant nerve pain is unlikely. And in type 2 diabetes, they may be diagnosed years after they've actually had diabetes, and they may have significant nerve damage at the time of diagnosis because the diabetes has gone undetected for so long. It's the same thing with kidney damage. With type 2 diabetes, there can be significant reduction in GFR, which is glomerular filtration rate, when diabetes finally gets detected. The damage to the kidneys follows the same pattern. Diabetic nephropathy is a slow, progressive decline in renal function. It shows up with increases in albuminuria, and then it's followed by a decrease in EGFR which is estimated glomerular filtration rate. Diabetes is the leading cause of chronic disease, sorry, diabetes is the leading cause of chronic kidney disease here in Canada, and having chronic kidney disease is associated with a decrease in the length and quality of life. Because a urine dipstick will appear negative until large amounts of albumin are present, a 24-hour urine collection is the gold standard, but seldom preferred by patients. I don't like to have to pee in a cup. Imagine having to do it all day long, every single drop. So next to the 24-hour collection, the test of choice is the random urine albumin to creatinine ratio, the urine ACR. The only snag is that the concentration of albumin will vary with the concentration of the urine. Albumin excreted in urine changes and can be influenced by exercise, infection, fever, menstruation, and acute and severe increases in blood sugar or blood pressure. That's why when you diagnose chronic kidney disease, it requires a persistent increase in the urine-albumin-creatinine ratio, not just one time. Screening renal function is usually added to standard annual blood work for those with chronic medical conditions, and at the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, it's important to get a baseline value. In type 1, renal function usually is measured after puberty or five years after diagnosis. Serum creatinine alone, aside from the urine-albumin-creatinine ratio that we just talked about, is another measure of renal function. Again, measuring the creatinine with a 24-hour urine collection isn't practical for most, so the glomerular filtration rate is usually estimated using the serum creatinine. And this is done with a calculation that I'm not going to talk about that incorporates serum creatinine, weight, age, gender, and race of the patient. In most lab results, it's automatically calculated anyway. It's a great estimate, but it's only that, a good guess and it will be less accurate in extremes of age and size. In these instances, the 24-hour urine collection is probably worth the trouble for an accurate measure. All right, the stages of renal failure go from one to five. In stage one, the GFR is above 90 mils per minute. Kidney damage is minimal, if any. So anything above 90 is pretty good. 
In stage 2, patients have mild kidney damage and the EGFR is between 60 and 89. The majority of medications metabolized by the kidneys do not require dose adjustments with stage 2 renal impairment, so 60 to 89, but many do in stages 3 to 5. So stages 3A and 3B are considered moderate renal failure, ranging from 30 to 59 mils per minute. And this is where it gets tricky. Severe renal failure is an EGFR of 15 to 29, and finally, end-stage renal failure is a GFR of less than 15. Like I said, drugs metabolized and excreted by the kidneys require dose reductions to compensate for the kidneys' inability to adequately filter them from the blood. During an annual medication review or at the time of a hospital discharge would be a great time just to do a once-over and make adjustments to doses if required. Should be done once a year. Here are a few drugs that should stand out in chronic kidney disease. The direct oral anticoagulants are all restricted to patients with good renal function. So watch the doses of apixaban, dabigatran, edoxaban, and rivarobaxin. Rivarax, oh anyways, Zeralto. Here's my jingle for this one. Okay. When the kidneys teeter-totter, watch the anti-clotter. You're welcome. Okay, a lot of patients end up switching to warfarin because their kidneys can't metabolize these newer agents effectively. So that's always an option if their kidney function declines. All right, what else? Gabapentin and pregabalin should also be watched closely. As the kidneys fail to clear these drugs, patients may begin to notice increased sedation, confusion, and a lot of people are on high doses of these medications. So the effects can be significant and come on quickly as impairment worsens. Okay, a few more to watch. Antivirals and antibiotics, um, levofloxacin, Cipro, Sulfatrim, and Macrobid. We talked about that before. And also watch oral hypoglycemics. We mentioned metformin in another podcast. That one should be discontinued when renal function is below 30 mils per minute. Okay, so you get the big picture in terms of kidney function or lack thereof. Now let's talk about electrolytes. Electrolytes are electrically charged ions or salts in the blood. The four most commonly affected by kidney failure are sodium, potassium, chloride, and bicarbonate. Potassium is the one we're going to zone in on as it's often flagged in potential drug interactions. For example, the spironolactone and trimethoprim example I mentioned before. In order to assess the safety of combining agents that could cause hyperkalemia, we need to know what's normal and if our patient is safely within that normal range. So, a normal potassium level would be between 3.5 and 5.4 millimoles per liter. No need to memorize, the reference range will always be on the lab results, but when the results aren't considered normal, then what? If the level is above 3.6, Usually, supplementation isn't even required, but you'd monitor their potassium again in a month. If it drops below 3.5, so now they're hypo, they have hypokalemia, supplementation is usually started at 40 milli equivalents per day, and again, you recheck in 30 days. Potassium levels that are below 3.2 are monitored weekly and may require potassium supplementation of up to 80 milli equivalents three times a day. 
and a level below 2.4 is considered very low and hospitalization and intravenous stabilization will be required. So, what about when potassium is above 5.4? Here's what's recommended in the literature. Severe hyperkalemia, variably defined, but typically a serum potassium over 6 to 6.5 milliequivalents per liter is a clinical emergency, mandating cardiac monitoring in a controlled setting and immediate medical intervention. So it's, if it's above 5.4, it's high. If it's between 6 and 6.5, it's severe. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells me that when potassium rises from 5.4 to 6, it is not good, and there's not a lot of wiggle room there. So in my opinion, a patient who's trending high normal shouldn't necessarily be denied a trimethoprim prescription, but should have their potassium rechecked prior to or very shortly after initiation. And I prefer to include both the patient and the prescriber in the decision to proceed or wait until the level is drawn. And then there's always the option of alternative therapy. So maybe there's another antibiotic we could switch it to. Okay, I would also take into consideration how long ago the level was drawn. So you may have a potassium level, but it could be from yesteryear. And also how the patient is feeling. We can go over symptoms of unfavorable levels of potassium in a few minutes, so you'll know what to ask. When we give potassium supplements, the level is rechecked one to two weeks later, sometimes a month later, and so I would assume this would be reasonable for the addition of a potassium-sparing agent like an antibiotic or a... What's the word for spironolactone? Diuretic. I couldn't think of it. Okay, Hypertension Canada and all of the other resources I checked, they don't reference any specific testing intervals, so we have to use our discretion. Here are the drugs that are known to influence potassium. Hypokalemia may occur due to thiazide diuretics, where was that word a minute ago, corticosteroids, and salbutamol, which I thought was interesting, I'll talk about that in a second, and theophylline. Hyperkalemia, so when it goes up, that can occur due to ACE inhibitors and ARBs, potassium-sparing diuretics like spironolactone, trimethoprim, NSAIDs, and digoxin. Another good reason to inform patients that OTC NSAIDs should be taken with caution. And coincidentally, patients with electrolyte imbalance and renal failure typically have hypertension. All of these could be negatively impacted by self-prescribed ibuprofen. So let's get to the point. How concerned should we be? How often does potassium actually go out of range, above 5.4 or below 3.5? For patients prescribed a thiazide, moderate hyponatremia, so low sodium, or hypokalemia, low potassium, occur in about 4%. For those prescribed an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, again, about 4% of patients will experience hyperkalemia. According to the Allhat and Shep studies, electrolytes should be checked annually in most instances and within two to four weeks after starting or increasing the dose of an ACE or ARB. The incidence of hyperkalemia with drug combinations depends on a lot of factors, including the baseline level, the dose of the agent being added or given, and renal function. So there's a lot of variability. For this reason, new additions or increases in medication should be followed up with blood work within a couple of weeks to determine the individual response. And sometimes a recheck should occur sooner depending on individual parameters. 
Right, so what happens when potassium goes out of whack anyway? Well, for most people, nothing. They don't have any symptoms at all and are none the wiser unless they happen to be hooked up to an ECG. You might see QT prolongation or changes in heart rate or rhythm. As their potassium drops to less than 3.5, the symptoms may start to appear. They may complain of fatigue, cramps, confusion, and leg weakness. In severe cases, paralysis and life-threatening cardiac arrhythmia could occur. When potassium runs high, a patient might notice, again, the muscle weakness, but they might also present with low blood pressure and decreased heart rate. So people who report feeling weak in the knees might just be a lush, but it's also possible that they may have too much potassium. Okay, so where was I? Low potassium is treated with oral potassium supplementation, like slow K, micro K, or if necessary, it can be given intravenously. When potassium levels are high, there's a few options. K-exalate is a resin that binds to potassium in the colon to get rid of it. Fludrocortisone increases potassium excretion in the urine. And IV glucose and insulin will shift potassium from the blood into the cell. And so will sodium bicarb and salbutamol. Sometimes salbutamol will be nebulized and inhaled to treat hyperkalemia. I didn't know that. Okay. How are you doing so far? I bet you're thinking, Michelle, bottom line me here. So here it is. We have a lot of people on multiple medications that could affect their potassium. And that's okay if we have a strategy and we do. Prevention. Advise patients to limit potassium intake when appropriate and especially to avoid salt substitutes, like no salt. These products are basically pure potassium powder sprinkled on their french fries. Also, addition of agents known to affect potassium should be done gradually and at low doses. And baseline potassium should be assessed first to ensure patients aren't already running high or low. Finally, we need to make sure that if volume is affected, like dehydration from vomiting or diarrhea, We need patients to have their electrolytes checked as this can really quickly disrupt electrolyte balance. There's a lot of variability depending on the drug and the dose and renal function, but also other comorbidities. So here's some guidance. If potassium is above 4.5 at baseline and the patient has moderate to severe renal failure, proceed with caution, especially if you're adding spironolactone. This might warrant a recheck within a couple of days to a week. If the baseline potassium is less than 4.5 and renal function is mild, less rigorous monitoring is required. So you could probably do a week or two, maybe even a month. Okay, I could go into sodium and magnesium and calcium and bicarb, but I'm going to cut it off here for now. So what are you going to do with all of this information tomorrow when you put on your coat? First, you're going to find somebody who's diabetic maybe a little cardiovascular disease or heart failure, and you're going to dig in. Check out their EGFR. Is it below 60? Uh Uh-oh, is it below 30? If so, run through their medication and see if the doses need to be adjusted. You can check in Micromedics under dosage adjustment. If you have someone on the drugs I've mentioned, like anticoagulants, gabapentin, antibiotics, or oral hypoglycemics, see if they had their blood work checked within the last year. If they haven't, recommend they get their annual blood work drawn and ask how they've been feeling. So any weakness, 
Is your blood pressure running low? Have they been unusually tired or getting muscle cramps? If your patient is starting on an ACE or an ARB or their dose is going up, check, check sorry, their baseline levels of potassium and ask if they have a lab rec for blood work in a couple of weeks and f- a follow-up appointment with their prescriber and let them know to call you if they feel weak or tired or become sick or dehydrated. Okay, it's a lot of information, but I think it's really valuable and something we can use all the time. So that's a wrap for this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great day and a great week, and I will see you next time. Bye.